Hi, I'm Nina, one of the producers of All Things Equal. This episode is a bit different to our normal content. It's a recording of a live event we held in Sydney for the launch of our education series, Uniform. And a language warning, there's some swearing ahead. So I really want to welcome you all here tonight. Thank you so much for coming out on a cold night for the official launch of season two of All Things Equal. And this season's um, episodes are called Uniform, and it's about education. Before we begin, of course, I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting and speaking and, and debating tonight on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I want to pay respect to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other Aboriginal people in the room here tonight. So for those of you who don't know me, my name's Verity Firth. I'm the Executive Director of Social Justice at the University of Technology, Sydney. And in a previous life, a long, actually quite a long time ago now, I used to be the Minister for Education and Training. And then after that, I went and worked at the Public Education Foundation, which is where I met Jane Caro. But we will keep talking. So the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion at UTS partners with 2SER, who are, of course, the wonderful radio station that belongs to UTS and Macquarie University, and we partnered to produce this fantastic podcast. Last season, so if you haven't listened to last season, I encourage you to go and find it. Last season, we looked at the Me Too movement and had some really wonderful, quite um, gutsy, interesting stories from women about the impact of Me Too and, and stories of their own lives. Um, but this time, of course, we're looking at education the great equaliser. And the way that 2SER produce this podcast, which is one of the reasons we love working with them so much, is they focus primarily on personal narratives. So they go and they talk to people and they talk about their stories, whether that be students, teachers and so forth. We particularly look at some of the different approaches to delivering education equitably and some of the unique challenges faced by individuals and schools. This evening, however... We want to expand the lens beyond the personal narrative, beyond the school gate, and look at the broader structural issues facing education in Australia. And who better to help us do that than the legendary Jane Caro? <laughs> so Jane is a Walkley Award-winning Australian columnist, author, novelist, broadcaster, advertising writer, documentary maker, feminist and social commentator. She is pretty amazing. She has published 12 books and her latest book is Accidental Feminists on the life story of women over 50. She appears frequently on The Drum, Sunrise, Weekend Sunrise, and she has created and presented four documentary series for ABC Compass, featuring in every year since 2015. She and Catherine Fox present a popular podcast on Podcast One, they should come across to 2SER, Oz Stereo, Women with Clout. She writes regular columns in Sunday Life and Leadership Matters, and we welcome you warmly here tonight, Jane. Next on our panel is Jordan Baker. Now, Jordan Baker has been a journalist for more than 20 years, working from outlets ranging from National Newswire AAP to the Sunday Telegraph. She, she, is, <laughs> she has been a North Queensland correspondent, a sports reporter, a magazine feature writer and a newsroom chief of staff. Jordan worked for the Sydney Morning Herald between 2005 and 2010, writing about transport and crime. But she joined again last year to cover the best beat of all, which is, of course, is education. With two children beginning their schooling, Jordan is passionate about exploring the issues facing students, parents, teachers, and policymakers. So, welcome, Jordan. Now, we were desperate to get a teacher on the panel tonight because a number of people said, there's always these things and you're always talking about it and there's never ever a teacher on the panel. So we really did approach a number of teachers. But I think it's, it's the wrong time of the year to be approaching teachers because we're in the middle of an election campaign and everyone just felt a little bit too nervous about it. But... There are lots of teachers here in the audience tonight. It's really great. We've got most of the executive of the Primary Principals Association who happen to be in Sydney for their state executive meeting. We've got representatives of the Secondary Principals Council here. And I know we've got a great group of teachers from local Glebe Public. 
So there will be a chance for Q&A and we want to include you much as, as much as possible. So please, teachers, if you have a – principals, if you have a question, put your hand up then. Um, we're also tweeting and the hashtag is all things equal. So if you're one of those people who likes to tweet, feel free, hashtag all things equal. And now we're going to proceed with the serious business and I'm going to start with Jane. So we're looking at the system. Jane, can you give us – a bit of an overview of the Australian education system. We have a large non-government sector in Australian education and I just thought you might be able to talk to us a bit about whether this is unusual and how has this impacted on education outcomes in Australia? Yes, uh, the fact that we have about 30% of students going to um, fee-charging schools is very unusual. However, what is most unusual is not so much that but the way we fund our schools because Australia is an outlier, like way, 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 way out in front in winning a race that actually nobody actually should even be running. And that is in terms of the amount of public money we give to private schools. Now, I call them private schools, even though people argue with me saying, well, they're publicly subsidised. Indeed, they are, because I use the terms public and private to indicate access. And public schools, as we know, are open to everyone as a system. Obviously, they're zoned. You know, there are practicalities. But private schools are really the gated communities of education. They do not have to accept anyone. They do not accept the responsibility for the compulsory education of all students. And they never have. And they don't anywhere in the world. So basically, Australia is an outlier, not so much in the number of kids who go to private schools, although that's that's way up there, but in the amount of public money that we give them. We are way out in front there. There is, there is literally a daylight between us and the next countries. Most countries don't give any public money to private fee-charging schools, but there are some that do, but none give it in the amounts and the way that we do. Um, in fact, uh, these figures may uh, be a little out of date, but they're sort of indicative, we were for a long time, we may still be the third lowest funders of public education per percentage of um, education funding. So it's not that we're lower in terms of amount, but in percentage of educa total education funding in the OECD. If I'm right, if my memory served me correctly, only Turkey and Colombia are worse. Now that's a, that's a neighbourhood you want to live in, isn't it, really? Um, so we have this and, – and it's all justified via the neoliberal mantra of parental choice, which completely misses the, the fact that as soon as you have fees involved, that choice becomes limited to those who can afford to pay fees. Um, so we basically have this very strange hybrid education system where we talk about and, – and it's actually – you cannot have – uh, unlimited parental choice and a compulsory universal system which looks after the educational needs of all kids as their as a right in their own right regardless of who their parents are. Those two things are actually directly contradictory and that's why our education system is so clunky, so awkward and we waste the most extraordinary amount of money but we don't waste that money on the schools that are educating the poorest kids. I mean, honestly, I sometimes have said on committees and boards and things, if we want to get the best possible fiscal manager we could, get a principal of a disadvantaged public school because those bastards can work miracles on a, a ball of string and a roll of sticky tape because they are incredible at getting value out of money. We're, what we waste enormous amount of money on is giving huge sums to schools that are already um, funded up the wazoo because I wouldn't approve of it, but you could make an argument for funding some of the lower fee schools that you know have a tiny, I'm sorry, the percentages are incontrovertible. Public schools educate the vast majority of all disadvantaged children in Australia, whatever kind of disadvantage you're talking about. Now, there may be the odd exceptional school somewhere in the Northern Territory, that kind of thing, but frankly, they're the exceptions that prove the rule. And we do, those high fee charging schools in particular, the money we give them gives us 
It makes no difference to the fees they charge. It makes no difference to the results that they get. It makes no difference to the cohort of kids that they generally tend to um, educate. And yet we are giving them an enormous amount of money and we don't ask them the first and most basic question. What's the return on that investment? Right. So there's an opening gamut. Jordan. So, as Jane sort of has just set out, debates around education funding have dominated the public debate for years in Australia. It really has been just an ongoing debate. And it must get pretty complicated as a journalist to explain all of the ins and outs of what is often really quite complicated policy. It's deliberately complicated. Um, If you want to make it hard for people to argue a clear case, make it so complicated that anyone can obfuscate it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. However... I'm now giving you the chance to simply... No, no, no. Um, I'll be here all night. I'm ready to go. um, But as simply as you possibly can, just for the benefit of the audience, what is Gonski in really simple terms? And how did it seek to address some of the issues that Jane has raised? That question actually about the complication is one of my great challenges because how there's a lot of people like Jane and and you people in the audience who, who understand it. But the average reader doesn't understand it. And how do you explain this in 500 words? It's really, really, really difficult. Um, The thing is, though, it used to be more complicated. Pre-Gonski, it was a hot mess. Nobody understood it. Policymakers didn't understand it. People, nobody really seemed to know how much uh, public funding each school was getting. And Gonski came along and said that school funding in Australia needs to be needs-based and sector-blind. So there was a system put in place by Gonski in which there was a calculation that spread across all schools, no matter what the sector is, to see how much money they would get, starting from a base rate for each child. That base rate went up according to need and down according to a parent's capacity to pay. So the idea was if you send your son to Trinity, talking about affordab- you know, access before, it $35,000 is unaffordable, regardless of how many public dollars you throw at Trinity for most people. So if you had a high capacity to pay, the amount of public money would go down, which is a very sensible system. Of course, the various sectors who were going to lose out fought it tooth and nail, and that's where the politics comes in. And the politics and the fear by both parties of the backlash from the Catholic and the independent school sectors is what has stymied Gonski ever since. At the moment, the Catholic lobby is the most vocal, um, and the politicians just aren't willing to have the courage of their convictions. And we don't even know really how much backlash there would necessarily be. There was a lot of talk in the Longwind by-election about a letter that went out to Catholic school principals. We don't actually even know whether that letter actually went out to parents. We don't – it was never tested. No one ever took the risk. There was just this fear that there would be a backlash from Catholic school parents and that was enough to send the government scurrying and Labor too, to be honest. It's really interesting as an ex-politician listening to that because I used to (laughs) – and I'm about to sound a bit bleak about human nature, so forgive me – but I used to genuinely believe that surely no one could be against additional fund for public schools. Like even in an area where I used to represent, which was a – it's a Labor green seat. It's not even a a Liberal seat – a vast majority of people, however, send their kids to non-government schools mm-hmm. because it's an inner city seat. So it's still only about 50% at the secondary school level that send their kids to public schools in the inner city suburb seat where I used to represent. Um, and I also um, strongly support all the public schools in our area, which are all excellent schools. Anyway, but that was that was a bit of a shock to me that so many... But then I thought, no, 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 it doesn't matter because surely no one would still disagree that there shouldn't be more money for public schools. And I would go out there and I'd do my door knocking and it did shock me a little bit. And I think it's because in the electorate's mind or in people's mind, and it is a bit about what you're saying, Jane, about sort of almost neoliberalism, the the role that it is my role as an... No, it is almost fear. I am an individual and I must fight for my children to get education because no one else is going to look after me. And any bit of money that goes to someone else is money that might not be coming to my child and their education. So it's almost like a fracturing of that sense of community responsibility or spirit. It's what Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez calls scarcity mentality. So basically when governments tell you in the most prosperous country, in the most prosperous period in the world's history that they can't afford to bring 
70% of Australia's children up to 100% of the minimum school resource standard. It's not just a school resource standard. It is a minimum school resource standard. When they basically say, yeah, let the, let the um, trash have 95%. It's good enough for them. Um, when they do that... It is, in fact, about this idea that we can't afford to support disadvantaged children. That's just rubbish. Of course, if we can't afford to support disadvantaged children at this point in our history, when the hell can anyone ever? It is a set of choices that are being made by governments and um, uh, leaders, but it's also a set of choices being made by privileged Australians. And they have been led to believe that there is only so much funding available for education. That's also bullshit. We can fund education as much or as little as we choose. And we have been led to believe we can't and therefore, as Alexandra... And her, she talked about this uh, scarcity mentality in a debate about education funding. So all over the world, neoliberals have trained parents to feel that there isn't enough... And therefore, they have to scratch the eyes out of other parents to get their own kid ahead. This is a false premise and it is also disastrous for all our children, including the ones who get to go to those gilded halls of privilege. I mean, they do worse at university, those kids. They do worse at university. And I have occasionally joked that it must be a lot easier when you're a public school kid, to go from one underfunded public institution to another <laughs> underfunded public institution than to go from some of those luxurious palaces of privilege into your average university. Imagine the shock for those poor children. I'm now going to talk a little bit about mix because... One of the other disturbing – so I was doing my um, research today before I came on this podcast and I do recommend everyone going and seeing that really excellent piece of work that was done by Inga Ting out of ABC and it's a really great use of data. That's what I was most impressed by, the sort of really great data visualisation. So it just shows the role that technology can also play in telling a story. But So go and check that out on the ABC website. But she also quoted in her article that the most recent – Equity in Education report by the OECD ranked Australia equal fourth for the most class stratified education system among OECD nations with disadvantage twice as concentrated as would be expected if social privilege were evenly distributed across all schools. And what alarms me, I mean, that's always been a tendency, but it's getting worse. What alarms me about that is that we have so much of our cultural heritage in Australia about being the nature of the fair go and the nature of this sort of um, working man, in inverted commas, paradise. It's like Americans saying they're the land of the free. As soon as you make a claim like that, you know it's the opposite is true. <laughs> um, but I also think it's going to really impact on us, particularly in the 21st century. Like everywhere you go, they're talking about 21st century skills and the need to solve problems across difference, the need to be genuinely able to mix with the world. But how is our current education system going to deliver those skills to people? We're going to be just as stratified, if not more, than the English schooling system or the American schooling system for that matter. So I've ranted a bit, but Jane and Jordan mix why is mix important and what can we do about it what can we try to do to solve this it seems to be an odd situation in new south wales particularly where you've got public schools like gender segregated public schools you've got 47 or 40 soon to be 48 selective schools you've got the private schools which are seen as a premium option by a lot of parents who would rather you know so you've got a failure to have economic uh, integration. You've got a failure to have classroom integration in terms of ability, gender integration. And yet on the same side, we're talking about 21st century capabilities. We're talking about differentiation in the classroom and managing these different abilities. Uh, so we seem to have two concurrent situations in which we're not addressing the stratification problem, yet at the same time trying to create classrooms that can. You know, we, we have, I think we're in a situation where we could actually start addressing gifted um, children within a mainstream classroom in a much more effective way than we have been able to before. Rob Stokes actually admitted at the Sydney Morning Herald Summit, I don't know if you heard him, 
he he actually admitted for the first time that the selective schools policy had been a really problematic one. But again, I can't see politicians coming back from that. Who's going to take the selective schools off the um, middle classes? Well, they're not. And and unfortunately, Australia has been busily building a class system via its education system, which is actually meant to be the lever to destroy class systems. But we've been doing precisely the opposite, which is really quite horrible. I mean, I dislike segregation on every level in any area. I make myself very unpopular in feminist circles, particularly pushing accidental feminists where people say to me, what can we do to improve the situation? As I say, women, uh, it's not about women doing things differently at work, it's about men doing things differently at home. That's where the change now has to happen. Okay, well, what can we do? And I say, do not send your children to a single sex school. Get them to go. <gasps> the intake of breath from middle-class feminists when you say that to them is um, quite interesting because they don't agree with segregation except when it comes to education, um, which is bizarre. The trouble is pragmatically, much as I loathe selective schools, they are the reason why New South Wales is the strongest public education state because it has held the middle classes more in the public system than has happened in Victoria or South Australia or anywhere else. So whilst I don't like them and I wish we could find a way to get rid of them, they are not entirely a problem. Whereas when you ask me about the Trinities, et cetera, et cetera, as long as they get public funding, they are entirely a problem. They offer nothing positive to our education system. Not a single solitary thing. Nothing. I don't even think they serve their students particularly well, to be honest with you. And I think we saw a whole Royal Commission on Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, which kind of made that pretty clear. Um, now, I'm sure they've changed, but nevertheless, they had to be forced into that change. Um, I think Australia has a serious problem. I don't know. I don't think it'll be fixed in my lifetime. I suspect there are two things that are going on at the moment that give me some hope. And for most people, these are bad things. The first is we have increasing enrolments in public schools right across Australia. Now, and the system that is losing enrolments to the public system is the Catholic system, not the independent system so much, not the Christian schools, but the Catholic system. And I think there are two reasons for this. The first is an obvious one, and it's how neoliberalism shoots itself in the foot, which I am enjoying on a schadenfreude <laughs> kind of level, because they want, they love this gap between the haves and the have-nots, the winners and the losers, the lifters and the leaners, all that horrible judgmental shit they go on with. Um, but, of course, what they've managed to do is they've managed to create stagnant wage growth. The problem with stagnant wage growth is people are having to make decisions about paying the mortgage or paying the school fees and they're choosing to pay the mortgage, which is very sensible, particularly in middle-class areas. They're going, they're looking at NAPLAN and the um, My School website, they're looking at the green and the pink and they're going, uh, Taramara High gets really, really good results. Why would I be paying all that money for Barker? Um, <laughs> and if I support Taramara High, my, the value of my house goes up. Like if you live in Kalara, the value of a house goes up. Whereas if I support Barker, it has no effect on the value of my house. <laughs> Never forget this as a middle-class argument. Um, particularly in Sydney, highly powerful. I'm pragmatic. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Um, so there's been that. But I also think that the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sex Abuse has had a terrible effect on the Catholics and people's faith in the Catholic school system. And I think that the response by a lot of independent schools, including some major Catholic schools, to um, same-sex marriage passing also did tremendous damage, tremendous damage. I, I, I had um, the lovely Lindsay Connors on the phone to me um, a, a while ago and she was incandescent with fury because she'd seen this ad for Riverview which said it was an inclusive school and she said how the fuck can you be an inclusive school when you charge you know and I said oh I know what inclusive is code for Lindsay she said what she said we take gay kids that's what that's about I'm about to throw it open to the floor because we're really interesting to have questions from you and we're going to have a roving mic, so start thinking about your questions. But before we flow it, um, throw it open to the floor, I'm going to ask a positive question. And I thought both of you may have good examples of this. I'll go to you first, Jordan, because you spend time out in schools and on the education beat. And I just thought, 
Can you give us some examples of really great stuff happening in our schools? I don't even know where to start. There's so much. And I remember when I, soon after I took this job, I was speaking to Verity about a story and Verity, and I've, I've used this in a column, but Verity said, the more time I spend in the public system, the more of a fabulous job I think it's doing, the more faith I have in it. And it's absolutely true. And when you see these schools battling against all odds, like Canterbury Boys did really well in NAPLAN this year. Like they they, um, were one of the tops in the state in terms of gain. And that is a battling school if ever I've seen one. It's down the road from Trinity. So you've got these, you know, boys in boaters and tires walking off to school and then down the road you've got these kids and yet they just nailed it. They've been doing so well in English and it's fantastic. And you see all these schools that are trying really interesting things. Like I did an interview the other day with a school who's trialling like a high school style system in years five and six to get the kids ready for high school and it's doing really well. So there's amazing um, ingenuity. There are amazing ideas. There's amazing responsiveness to the needs of the community and really, really creative ways to approach it. So I, I, I am more and more and more impressed and I have more faith in the public system the more time I spend in this job. Jane, do you have some good news stories? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. I mean, public schools do extraordinary things. I'm a bit sick, though, of us running the public school system on the goodwill of teachers. Uh, I, that can only last for so long. And we are exhausting our teachers and staff. A round of applause from the audience there. Because we're not giving them the support and the resources they need to do their job properly. And you know, that can that cannot last. Eventually we're going to have to do that. But I also think, and I, this is bittersweet in a way, um, I agree with you. I mean, I sent my kids to uh, public schools from kindergarten to year 12. I went to public schools. Old people told me when I decided to send my children to Artam and Bublik and Mossman High that I was, you know, um, I was definitely condemning them to a life of drug addiction and uh, prostitution. I said to them, you're an idiot. Um, and you're also spending a whole lot of money you don't need to. Um, but that's up to you. I don't mind if you do that. Just don't take the fucking public money with it. Um, but what really makes me sad is there are a whole lot of families who cannot actually really afford the kinds of fees that they're paying. And they have been persuaded mostly by marketing and by the churches and their – because. You know, once upon a time, the churches propped up the schools. That's not true anymore. The schools are propping up the churches. So they are being persuaded to spend money they can ill afford. They're working extra hours, you know, no, uh, another job, you know, so that they can pay these school fees for schools that are not giving them anything better than what they could get from the school down the road. And that is terrible. Just think, just think where Australia would be if most Australian parents sent their children to the local public school and had faith in it and all that money they spend on fees was being spent on other shit. Much, much more, you know, useful shit. What would happen to our GDP if that was the reality? But instead we're spending it on propping up the Catholic Church and the Pentecostal Church and the... I mean, sorry, their day is way over. This is a dying thing that Australian parents who can ill afford it are being persuaded to do. And, yeah, look, I saved – I calculate my husband and I reckon we saved about $300,000 after tax by not sending our two daughters to private schools. And we're educated, confident people. That's not the people that are getting ripped off by this. It's people who aren't educated, confident people who are hocking themselves up to the eyeballs to get their kid into a school because they feel that you're a good parent if you send your child to a private school and you're a bad parent if you don't. And we have had many governments who have actually used education funding to reward parents they approve of and punish parents they disapprove of. And education funding shouldn't be about parents. We've all had our education. Education funding should be about kids. And kids have not done anything to get the parents they've got. <laughs> you know, good, bad, indifferent. That's the luck of the frickin' what you come out of. You know, you have no idea. And they have no, you know, we, we've, we're ignoring the kids. It's all about parents. Even the, the, the 
name parental choice gives you a clue at where our politicians are concentrating their efforts, and that is in parents' insecurities and fears. And that's a tragedy. Do you want to add to that, Jordan? I'll be honest, one of the big things I've noticed, both as a new parent whose son is in the school system and in this job, is it's it's perception. I mean, the public system needs a really good publicist. (laughs) Um, I've been trying for 20 years. And and that's part of my job. Part of my job is to, I mean, one of the things I want to do in this job while I'm, you know, um, before I get put on to something else, is is try to educate parents that they have a choice and that that the the public school is an excellent option, you know, and, and stop this kind of, this, this, these Chinese whispers that go on in parks and on Facebook mums groups and, you know, about, you know, is this school really very good? I'm not sure if my child will thrive there and all that sort of stuff. They need to understand that it is a great option. Can I just tell a quick personal yes. story? Because I was at – I'm such a North Shore housewife on the lamb. I really am. I was at my Pilates class in Lane Cove. <laughs> And I do my Pilates class in a T-shirt which says Public Education Foundation. And I'm not sure what bit of that T-shirt this particular woman doing Pilates for the first time and possibly the last time after what happened uh, missed on my T-shirt. But she was chatting to the lady who runs the thing and I'm lying down doing my bridges or whatever the hell it was. And um, she said, oh, yes, oh, my son's in United, such a, you know, and he won't do his homework and blah, blah, blah. So I just say to him, you know what, if you don't do your homework, I'm sending you to Hunters Hill High. And I saw like a red mist descended. <laughs> Poor woman. Of all the Pilates classes in all the gin joints in all the world, she had to walk into mine. And I just sat up and I said to her, please don't do that. Please do not use public schools as a threat. That is an appalling thing to do. And she just went, oh, there are some really excellent public schools. I said, yes, and Hunters Hill High is one of them. And you must not. That is, an, that is an absolute indictment of the teachers and the students in that school. And you must not use public schools as a threat. But that's the whispering that goes on. That's the talk that undermines all the work that is done by teachers and principals. And every time you hear shit like that, do what I did. Decimate the Pilates classes on the North Shore. <laughs> See, it's about community. <laughs> now, we're going to pass the microphone around to anyone who's interested in asking a question. We've got about seven minutes for questions from the floor. Um, first question here, Eva. Second question here. There's probably more comments than questions. I just wanted to comment on that middle class type stuff because we've just been through it with my grandsons hitting high school. A whole stack of nice, lefty, civilised families who had their children at Stanmore Public when their children didn't get into the selective schools, sent them off, you know, to the various other private schools in the area. I think we really do need to do a hell of a lot of work on the fact that, you know, that parents are scared of it. And I mean, I've heard of people who've been accused of being basically of child abuse because they've been said they were sending their children to the local you know, public school. And the other thing I'd like to suggest, and I think it's something we could do in health as well as in education, I think anybody who is in Parliament should not be allowed to send their children to a private school or have private health insurance. I think we would get great improvements in both. I agree. Thank you. Uh, Hannah Archer-Lawton from the Teachers' Federation. Um, so I would like it to mention that there was a cut by Scott Morrison's government to not fund the public schools up to that minimum resource standard. I think, Jane, you captured that very beautifully. Um, so as far as that goes, the, what I would like to bring light to is the fact that the students missing out on that funding were the children most needing that funding. So it wasn't the kids that are in these the inner city schools necessarily, um, but it's the kids that have disabilities that ha- received no additional loading in in the funding the funding model. Um, it's the kids that are from Aboriginal backgrounds or um, language you know languages of second language or uh, multicultural backgrounds that are missing out on that funding. And that three hundred million dollar funding would make so much difference to our public schools. So I guess, you know, knowing uh, I'm a teacher as well, so knowing how much um, passion and like we work with educators every day that give it their absolute all, how do we change the minds of those 
parents? Like, what's the rhetoric we use if it's not, this is what's going to make a difference? Like, this is making a difference to Australia. How do we change that rhetoric? Because the fair funding is so the, important. The trouble is the rhetoric has changed. And in fact, I think we won the needs-based argument. And I think we won the sector-blind argument. But what's happened is that cleverly, in a nefarious kind of way, the Conservatives have co-opted that language and called Gonski 2.0 needs-based and sector-blind and made it so complicated that they can argue that it is when it absolutely isn't. And so we won. We won the rhetorical battle, I think. Um, but they just they don't care about that. They have just co-opted that language. There's a lot of problems with what's going on because it ta taps into the way governments pitch it, taps into insecurities and classic marketing techniques. I mean, when you were saying about the parents being afraid, one of the things that happens is, and being you know accused of child abuse, like you know prostitution and drug addiction in my case, um, we narrowly missed those two. Um, but... Uh, in fact, I'd look at some of my parents, friends who spent money and think, mm, but you didn't narrowly miss, <laughs> sadly, despite the investment uh, or perhaps because of it. Um, but I think that you've got to remember that when someone spends 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50 thousand dollars on something they get for nothing down the road, they have to say that what's being on offered down the road for nothing is absolute shit. Otherwise, what kind of an idiot are they? So that is a really serious problem that our system has set up. That people who spend that money have to rationalise it by abusing the schools that are struggling. Also, when we argue from the perspective of equity and, you know, uh, disadvantaged children, although that is absolutely bedrock important and I do it all the time, there is a problem in that parents go, and that's precisely, do I, I don't want to send my children to those schools because they have an image of these schools that have the lame, the blind, the, you know, crazy and the drug addicted. Exactly, but they don't want their children exposed to life. <laughs> that might make them dirty. But the, inter the interesting thing is, and I, I actually think I know who you're talking about, it only takes a couple of those people to send their kid to the local and, and everything changes. Like the that school I'm at, my, yeah. the principal is thinking about sending her son to the local boys' school, the much maligned, you know, you mustn't send them there or, you know, you, you don't care about them school. And if she does that, then parents will follow suit. It is true. There is a sort of critical mass argument. It's almost like a community organising model, which I know um, I did in our area and a lot of our friends have done in their areas and it's really I just about it. getting a whole lot of friends and let's all go <laughs> together and 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 it it fights against exactly what we were talking about this individualization mm -hmm. of it's all, we're all on our own and we're all just fighting for our own child and we're actually saying you know what we're fighting for all of our children mm -hmm. and we're going to raise the boat I've actually heard people say, well, we should send our children to the private schools because that leaves much more space in the public schools. So they manage to get themselves a sense of virtue like they do with the health care. You know, we're not saving the public schools, schools mommy, our I've heard child. That. Yes. And I mean, so they can actually feel good about the fact that they're not occupying one of these public spaces which would go to a needy child. So it's interesting. They can't feel good about it. They're post-rationalising their selfishness, yes. <laughs> now, I would like... I can see, is there a question up the back there? And I think it's a, it's a teacher. <laughs> so wonderful. I think this is right. oh, you, a you were a teacher too. You were a teacher too. I, I used to be a teacher. Now I'm a principal. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's a group that's here from the Primary Principals Association. And um, uh, just a question for you, Verity, as, a, as a, an ex-politician, uh, a reform politician, we might call you. What do you think would, would overcome... Uh, the, the reluctance in politics to, to grasp the nettle on this. I mean, what, what would have to happen to make politicians really say, this, enough's enough, we've got to change things? It's a really good question, and if I knew the answer, you know what I mean? But, um, so I'll say two things. I do agree with Jane. It sort of breaks my heart that the moment we had at Gonski failed, because I do think that there was a brief moment there where there was an agreement, a sort of... Cro uh, I don't know if there was ever a 
bipartisan political agreement, but there was at least a community or at least a sector wider. Yeah, yeah, that's true, actually. That is true. That is true. Um, so I do think that there was a moment at which a objective standard um, with Gonski's role in the business community as well, with, you know, Catherine Griner on the – all of that sort of stuff, it really was possible, objective standard, and we could have run with it. And it was lost. And it was lost for a whole range of reasons, including, you know, the messiness of, you know, Rudd's overthrow and all sorts of things happen, right? So, um, opportunity lost. What I will say, and when I was at the Public Education Foundation, I thought about this a lot – I remember talking to Parsi Salberg, who's now over at the Gonski Institute with Adrian Piggley, and he was talking about what happened in the Finnish education system in terms of all of the thing, you know, great things that they do. And I was asking him, gosh, how did you achieve all of that? And he said, well, what we had was a 30-year bipartisan political consensus of the on the direction of the education system in our country. So what it meant, which is not what we've had in Australia, is you don't get these huge policy swings at the election of different governments where you go from one to another completely different approach and back to a previous approach and I think that that is one of the great problems we have in Australian politics. How do we solve it? Well um, what I used to attempt to do was try to bring a sense of collective responsibility into the political debate. You know what are the key things that we want to achieve as a society? It's in all of our interests for de democratic reasons that we have a well-educated and prosperous community, how do we do that? We fund education and we provide um, the opportunity for all to rise. And I think you can win those rhetorical debates in the right circumstances with the right policy, Alagonski, and with a bit of luck. And I'll say in order to be positive and a real... Um, community-based that organising, so actually being. But it's it's hard. We were just curious in terms of clarification when we say that the, the battle, we nearly had it and then it was lost. We are coming up to the next federal election. Labor and Greens have promised to fund to that minimum resource standard. It is called the fair funding now. I don't believe it's lost or maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah. Inform well, it was, it was the lost then. Yes, yes it was but lost we're... Then. we're we're here again. I, now, isn't that good? I now feel... But see, I'm not practised anymore in politics. <laughs> Sorry. I should have given the glorious ending, which is yes. I just I'm trying to. I'm trying yet. to remain above partisanness in my new role as a, you know, esteemed academic institution. But yes, as was just said then, there are a difference in parties at this election. Hint, and, hint. and I was heartened by Bill Shorten when he dropped his guard a bit talking about... An, only I would have picked this up, um, probably. Um, dropped his guard for a minute and he was talking about his mum after the attack. He said, just because you've got grey hair and you're not part of the private school backslapping, and I, my ears went, okay, that's a signal that they are aware of this um, absurdity and are signalling quietly to people like me <laughs> that they're going to do something about it. But they are going to keep the funding maintained and the funding guaranteed rewards to the Catholic schools. So is part of the problem the way that we measure schools and the reliance on NAPLAN as a, a, as a measure? Um, because we're a really successful country in a lot of ways and a successful society and I know we still have our problems but, you know, Comparatively, we're very successful as a country, um, but we still go back to that very narrow measure for schools. And is that part of the problem? I, I, I don't know. NAPLAN is sort of a mixed blessing, I think, because I, I think you could argue that one of the reasons why public enrolments are going up and Catholic enrolments are going down is because Catholic schools are always seen as the premium option. But if you actually look at the bald facts, you can tell that they're not necessarily any better or perhaps not as good. So I think but a lot of people think that that's one of the reasons that's been driving this move to... So, I mean, NAPLAN's got its problems, obviously, and it's skewed the, the public system in a lot of ways. But there has also been this sort of interesting benefit as well. You know what was interesting? In our local area where there was a more residualised school and a more middle-class school, the year before all of... Um, our my first daughter's commencement, the more residualised school did extremely well in that plan and, in fact, did better than the more middle-class school. And 
interestingly, it, that was what really helped the confidence drive towards the more residualised school and sort of ever since then it's been building. So I know what you're saying and I think you're definitely right about too narrow a focus on what is a very, you know, literally one day in a student's life every two years. You're exactly right. But interestingly, that transparency can often work for public education as well. Uh, it, just to be the voice of doom. Um, it's draining the life out of our teachers. It's draining the life out of them. And our students. And if what we're into is education and turning kids on to learning, then draining the life out of our students and our teachers is possibly not worth the small advantages we're talking about. I also suspect that um, every school will know, every school leader will know, every teacher will know that every now and again, I know bitterly because my kids were never in that cohort, that there is a cohort every now and again that is just awesome in a school and suddenly the results leap up because these kids are great. Same teachers, same school, same curriculum, same everything, just something in the water that year in that suburb that, you know, all these kids were awesome. And parents are such, I mean, why do we assume now that if our children do well, it's because of something the teacher in the school did and if they did badly, it's something the teacher in the school did. You know, when my kids didn't do their homework, I crazily blamed them. Um... (laughs) Even residually perhaps me, but certainly not the school. And I think that's the problem. The the data makes you think that students are like little widgets into which um, education is injected and some people have better injections than others. And that is just bullshit. It's not true. And if we're dealing in false paradigms, we are never going to get anywhere. There is... Time for one last question, if there is one. Hello and thank you. Um, I guess one thing that concerns me whenever we talk about sort of funding and choice is that we end up talking about the middle classes. And, you know, Jane, you pointed out earlier that really uh, selective schooling enabled us to keep the middle classes. So my question, and it goes to the question of mix as well, is how do we actually really broaden this discussion so that we are truly talking about the whole of our student body rather than shifting middle class students between schools? I think the problem is that it's middle class parents who have choice. So it's middle class parents who are driving the divide. It's middle class parents who are starving They don't mean to. It's not why they choose a a private school or desperately try to get their kids in a selective school. They're not not doing it specifically to um, starve uh, disadvantaged kids of funding. And when you point it out to them, a lot of them are horrified that that's the result. But tragically, that is the result. And uh, that's the bit that it's really hard to get across because you've got parents who – are imbued with neoliberal ideas that, you know, they have to do the best for their child and who don't want to, don't really want to think. I mean, people used to say to me when I said in uh, the 90s and the 2000s that I was sending my daughters to public schools when I could afford to send them to private schools, that I was sacrificing my children for my principles. And I said to them, well, two things. First, I don't think I'm sacrificing them at all. But second thing... So what do you teach your children about principles? That you hang on to them as long as they suit you and then you just dump them when they don't? Um, And the reason we have this argument about the middle classes is because they're the ones who decide. And I'm with you. The reason I fight this battle, I couldn't give a flying fuck about the middle class kids. They'll be fine. You know, they're they're not the ones who are going to fall behind the eight ball. They're not the long tail that are, you know, just dragging um, the results back that is, you know... They're not the people who are um, going to be living half the life they could have lived if they'd been given the support they needed. Why do I fight this fight? Because of them. But until we persuade the middle classes, we can't actually do anything substantial. I mean, as long as they think, oh, 95% of minimum SRS is fine, fine for those poor kids because they don't know any different, we have a major problem. What's an, what outcome are we after? Because we are obsessed with the academic outcome. What we forget is the citizenship outcome, 
the whole human being outcome. We don't even talk about that. And that's the problem with NAPLAN. It leads us straight down the academic outcome. What sort of people did they turn out to be? We need to rethink what we want out of education. And even, I was talking to a friend of mine the other night who is worried about sending her kids to the local public school and I said, what are you afraid of? Because a lot of kids go to uni now, like heaps, much more than when we were young. And she didn't really know. You know, she, what, I mean, her kids will go to uni regardless. What is, like, she didn't know. Like, but is it a fear? It's just this sort of visceral fear. The judgment of other parents. A lot of, of it, it is fear of being, you know, had the finger pointed. Oh, I used to go to dinner parties. Where do your children go? Because I look like a nice middle class lady. It's my disguise. And um, they'd say, where do your kids go to school? And I'd say, oh, Mossman Hunt. They'd go, oh, <laughs> I've just met a monstrous mother. How amazing. That's, that's a lot of what they fear. Um, Thank you so much for coming along. It has been a really lovely night. I cannot thank Jane and Jordan enough. You were spectacular. Absolutely spectacular. Neither Jane nor Jordan have been paid at all for this, so please feel free to shout them to drinks at the bar. I want... um, to thank everybody who's been involved with this podcast, as I, I can't say um, again how much 2SER, 2SER have been absolutely brilliant. Our producer, Nina Copel, Ollie Henderson, everybody else behind the scenes at 2SER, they are huge talents, these young people producing just state-of-the-art, brilliant podcasts, and it's just been wonderful to work with them. Um, hooray. And, of course, please subscribe. It's available from tonight. So any you can go on, look up All Things Equal, wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And you can listen, listen, listen to this wonderful series that we've put together called Uniform. And you can also go back and listen to After Me Too as well, which is our season one. So thanks again for being here, everyone. I think there's a tab on the bar till 730 Is that right? Or until the tab runs out. So please feel free to stay if you would like. And thank you again. See you.